Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. At the end of this episode, we've got an interview with Heather McGee, the brilliant author of The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. Uh, it was a really enlightening conversation for us. So stick around and listen to it. Before we go to News of the Week, Ravi, what's going on? You know, Jason, and I watched a little football this weekend. Did you Did catch you? any games? Yeah, I caught about half of a game. Uh, you know, it's it's just wonderful right now to be a fan of, of the sport of football. Uh, there's some <laughs> not wonderful parts of it, which we'll get to, I think, later in this episode. But, you know, I, I, I drove to Buffalo a week ago to watch the Texans game where we won 40 to nothing and caught some, you know, fall foliage in upstate New York, uh, which is beautiful. And then uh, enjoyed the game last Sunday where we played uh, your hometown team. Yes, um, you all finally beat us. Uh, it, it Look, being the greatest team ever ha- comes with it the fact that everybody gears up for the game against your team. Like, it's everybody's Super Bowl. And so everybody's given us their best shot. And right now, we're not doing a very good job giving it back. So anyway, it's exciting that the Chiefs are underdogs now. And this is just that part of the 30 for 30 slash Disney movie story where it's the downward montage but the upward montage is going to be awesome. Yeah, I bet. I bet. I mean, we've still got some talent over there. <laughs> still got uh, some talent. We got Patrick Mahomes. We still got some. We're plucky. All right, give me the news of the week. That's enough of that crap. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about you know a very busy schedule of bills working their way through the hill, and so we wanted to come back to that and give our listeners an update on where things stand and and try to scene set a little bit. On the debt ceiling over the past week, uh, both houses of Congress passed a temporary extension to the debt ceiling on party lines with Democrats voting for it, obviously Republicans against it. And this is setting up just another standoff on the debt ceiling that will happen probably in December when this uh, temporary extension expires. Uh, But most of the interesting politics right now are happening in and around the dual packages of the uh, 1.5 trillion dollar infrastructure bill and what was previously a 3.5 trillion dollar uh build back better bill and you know where we left things off was uh, Pelosi was calling a vote in Congress in the House of Representatives and she had to pull that vote uh over the infrastructure package because she didn't have enough votes there was some speculation that she would have some republican votes to make up for some liberal uh, Democrats who were not going to vote for it because they wanted to consider both bills in tandem. Uh, she didn't get the votes, and now Schumer has set a Halloween uh, deadline uh, for a vote 
on the reconciliation package and infrastructure. And, you know, there are tons of both right and left wing organizations pouring money into swing districts, uh, lobbying for and against this bill. And there's some strange bedfellows, you know, there's like some reporting that Chamber of Commerce is for the infrastructure bill, but they're against the reconciliation bill. I mean, it's it's getting super complicated. We said two weeks ago that this was just politics as usual. Jason, is that still our contention? Yeah, I think so. And I think what people should be careful of when they're talking about this with their friends and relatives is like, don't fall into this Washington trap where you're debating 1.5 trillion versus 3.5 trillion. Like, I mean, it's like, when you look at an airplane uh, at the ground, like you're not afraid of heights because you, your brain cannot conceptualize the height at which you, which you are flying. Right. Versus if you're like at the top of a building and you look down, your brain can understand that. And you're afraid. Well, one and a half trillion versus three and a half trillion. We can't conceptualize, at least I can't numbers of that magnitude. What we can conceptualize are, you know, individual things in the legislation. So I just would urge people don't get into this trap of arguing, uh, you know, how many trillions are better, um, but instead talk about like what you care about getting done. Talk about like the bridge in your community, for instance. There are two, basically two camps right now. One campus, everybody knows that they need to cut the 3.5 trillion. There's no, they just don't have the votes to to do 3.5. And I think a lot of people think it's going to settle in a little north of 2 million. Like 2.1 is the number I keep hearing. Now, there's one camp that says that they should just do a haircut to every program in the 3.5 trillion. And that's, I would say, more liberals are in that camp uh, than in the second camp, which is the second camp is maybe we should do fewer things, but extend the life of those programs uh, so that they're more durable. and that camp is, I think, Pelosi and a lot of the moderates who want to focus on, you know, certain things like like preserving Obamacare for the long haul, for example. And honestly, I don't have a strong opinion on on which of those two camps is right. But uh, one thing that seems to be clear here is that the politics of this are very high stakes for Terry McAuliffe in Virginia, uh, who's on the ballot in November and in a very tight race, and for the midterm elections, and probably for Biden's legacy here, there, there is a strong chance, uh, and I hope I'm wrong about this, that, the, that this is his last chance at a signature piece of legislation in this term uh, as president for a big piece of legislation, and potentially for his entire presidency, obviously, if he's not reelected and, and Republicans take over after this, this could be it. So the stakes couldn't be higher. Tim Kaine said something to that effect. He said passing both infrastructure and reconciliation are absolutely critical to Democrats maintaining a majority in the House and potentially in the Senate. And he says that it is directly related to Biden's success. I mean, this is super obvious, but how much is this bill tied to, to Biden's legacy? And, and should that change the way we think about this? Uh, I don't know. I don't think it should change the way we think about it. I do th- like the legacy part. I, I- I do think that it should affect how aggressive we are in terms of because uh, I think Kane is right that, you know, if we've said this a million times, if you're the party of government and you don't get government things done, then you don't get reelected. Right. I mean, right. like it's simple. You got to deliver. And I think you're right that it's one of the last chances to do this. I mean, regardless of what happens with the makeup of the Senate, like in general, if you think about landmark pieces of legislation, right, if you think about Obamacare, you think, you know, that sort of thing, it doesn't generally happen the third or fourth year. Right. Yep. And and it and it oftentimes doesn't happen in the second term. I mean, it happens when you've got all the momentum, you've got all the juice, you're there. 
that's when you get it done. And then after that, you're pretty much playing defense to keep, I mean, if Obamacare is any guide, then you're playing defense to keep as much of it in place as possible. Um, yep. So I think it's really important because you got to have something to argue for in the midterms. Now, not that we don't, right? Uh, the things that have been done on on COVID and that sort of thing, there's, there's big stuff to argue for and there's big accomplishments. But I, I agree. I think this is super important. Yeah, there seems to be this narrative that Biden is in a death spiral and it's not completely made up. <clears throat> I mean, his polling numbers have dropped pretty considerably uh, from this, you know, the beginning of the summer and Afghanistan is a big part of that. But there are other things like the Delta variant and you could see how he could he could turn this around pretty, I wouldn't say easily, but pretty predictably. Right. You know, the Virginia results are strong. Uh, COVID gets under control. Uh, and he, you know, he's able to point to his aggressive actions on the mandate and they pass these pieces of legislation. Those three things coming together with hopefully some stabilization of the Afghanistan story. And then you're like, all right, Biden is on his way um, and you may never reclaim the, the heights of his heights before the summer, but could regain strong standing, which means Democrats heading into the midterms could regain strong standing. You could see this happening. Uh, my. You know, I where I'm curious is how confident everybody is that something's going to get passed, right? It seems like the media seems to hold the question open and and seems to have this Democrats in disarray narrative. But when you talk to people on the Hill, they all seem to think something is going to pass and it's going to pass relatively soon. What are your instincts here? Like, are what's your level of alarm or concern right now about our ability to get this done? Well, something's going to pass, and it's a question of you know how much is going to pass, like how much good is it going to do, and then politically, it's a question of is it going to be cast as a victory, right? Yeah, because that's you know all of the talking it down, all of the oh, it's only one and a half trillion, oh, it may only be two, it may be the haircut across the three and a half. That is all the the media. Like, look, let's be real. When Donald Trump was president, they had crazy stuff to talk about every single day like every right. hour there was crazy stuff to talk about and now we're like how big of an infrastructure and reconciliation package should we pass and let's be real like they're bored and they don't know what to do so as a result and i'm not like assigning malicious intent to them i'm just saying they got i'm not even going to say they got lazy i'm going to say they just got used to the news was so insane. And now I don't, I'm not saying they liked that, but the news was so insane that like reporting the news took no analysis. You didn't have to do anything to try and intrigue people to find it interesting. They didn't find it good, but like, you know, whether or not we're going to be at nuclear war with North Korea, like you pay attention, <laughs> you know? So yeah. my, my point is, I think that the path to getting back on a on a uh, a positive narrative is not that difficult. It's just like you said, it's this off year election, you know, Virginia and others. But then on top of that, it's like the economy continues to improve. The economy yep. continues to improve. You pass some legislation. You properly go around crowing about the legislation you passed and you yep. put you put some, you know, spring in your step. And all of a yep. sudden, like you can change the narrative for a while until they get back to, hey, we got to have a story to tell about Democrats. I'm not saying that it's a monolith and that they do this on purpose. Or that they have a meeting. It's just when things are going much better, what are you going to say? You got to create yeah. conflict. I mean, you got to keep people listening past the first season. Yeah, and I agree with you that the that the the narrative, like even passing this isn't 
the only answer, right? Like I was looking at data this morning from the child tax credit, which voters give equal credit to Republicans and Democrats for the child tax credit. Like we're not good at selling our own victories. And so, you know, some people have suggested that even the way this passes is important for how it's sold. Mike Murphy, for example, friend of the pod, was saying that he thinks that Biden should call sort of key senators and members of Congress to Camp David for a couple of days as this thing rounds the bend. And so he can make like a, he could both ensure it happens, but also like show people that he's directly involved in getting this on. I thought that was a pretty good idea. I'm I'm a big fan of the theater around this kind of stuff because I think it, it really matters that voters see you putting in the effort and like when, you know, Biden who has like a competency, I think, problem with the American electorate right now, which is sad to say, given where he started, uh, that would go a long way, I think, in at least mitigating some of the concerns that some of swing voters have of him. And they need to get this done before, I think, the Virginia election, because McAuliffe is tight, like, and he's not winning the suburbs uh, right now in a lot of polls, uh, and he's not winning swing voters, uh, independents at least. So he could lose that election. So I think we we need to be urgent because one thing leads to another. And I think there's a chain of events here that could either be super positive or super negative. Yeah, you got to have a story to tell as to how it happened. And you've got to, I mean, the downside to consistently trying to garner bipartisan support is that it limits you from spiking the ball on the stuff that you've gotten done, right? right. So if you're trying to get, and I'm not, I'm not saying that this shouldn't happen. I'm just saying everybody wants to simplify it to why aren't we any good at bragging about our stuff? Well, because we're trying to get the other side to go along with us on the next thing. And, right. and, and as long as you're trying to do that, it's pretty hard to taunt them as you run into the end zone if you want them to, like, you know, work with you the next game. I mean, that's a terrible analogy because that doesn't happen in football. But, but you see my <laughs> point. <laughs> Man, I am like three episodes, three weeks in a row with real bad analogies. It's a hell of a streak I've got going. So I've been traveling a little bit for work lately, and one of the things I think about the most is getting back to my Helix mattress, because it's a really good mattress, and other mattresses do hurt my back. The good news is Helix Sleep has a quiz that takes just two minutes to complete. It matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. Everyone's unique, and Helix knows that, so they have several different mattress models to choose from. They have soft, medium, firm mattresses, mattresses that are great for cooling you down if you sleep hot, and even a Helix Plus mattress for plus-size sleepers. And I took the Helix Sleep quiz, and I was matched with a Midnight Lux because I wanted something that felt medium and I sleep on my side. So if you're looking for a mattress, you take the quiz, you order the mattress that you're matched to and the mattress comes right to your door, shipped for free. You don't ever need to go to a mattress store again. Just go to helixsleep.com slash majority54, take their two-minute sleep quiz and they'll match you to a customized mattress. They have a 10-year warranty and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash majority 54 that's helixsleep.com slash majority 54 for up to 200 dollars off and two free pillows ravi so diana and i got a box in the mail from this new sponsor that we have everly well in the next couple of days i'm going to take the test i'm going to send it in and i'm very excited but i have to be honest there's a little part of me that's a little trepidatious because i was looking at the list of foods that it can tell me whether or not i'm sensitive to and one of the foods is cottage cheese and i'm pretty sure my body reacts well to cottage cheese but what if i'm wrong like i don't even know what i'll do anyway <laughs> 
EverlyWell offers affordable at-home lab tests that give you trusted, physician-reviewed results. You can choose from tests including food sensitivity, metabolism, sleep and stress, and here's how it works. They ship you your test straight to your door with everything needed for the sample collection, and then you return your test to CLIA certified lab with a prepaid shipping label. And then your physician-reviewed results and insights are sent to your device in just days, and over 1 million people have trusted EverlyWell with their at-home testing. For listeners of the show, EverlyWell is offering a special discount of 20% off an at-home lab test at everlywell.com slash majority54. That's everlywell.com slash majority54 for 20% off your at-home lab test. everlywell.com slash majority54. Well, speaking of getting into the end zone, uh, (laughs) let's transition into a, a, a story about the NFL. Now, listeners, don't leave yet. I know this is more NFL news than you want in one episode, but this is really a story about American politics. Uh, The coach, the former coach of the Las Vegas Raiders, John Gruden, who is also a well-known TV personality, stepped down slash was fired, depending on how you look at it, uh, because uh, of emails revealed in the course of an uh, investigation of a separate football team. And his emails, I think, spanned many years, going back from 10 years to a couple years ago. And he really hit the bingo card of offensive <laughs> statements. Uh, it's it's really hard to even do them justice. It started with a racist remark about the head of the NFL Players Association. Um, he also called uh, his current boss, the NFL commissioner, a derogatory slur for gay. He also criticized uh, the NFL for what he viewed as forcing another team to draft a player who was out. He was sharing topless photos or at least participating in, you know, the sharing of topless photos of a cheerleader for the Washington football team. He made transgender jokes. He made more anti-gay jokes and also criticized Eric Reed for taking the knee and said he should be fired. And so he, you know, John Gruden resigned, Jason. And I swear to God, I'm not kidding about this. Uh, I went online and looked at Ben Shapiro and other members of the right, because I'm a masochist, but also because I, I, I genuinely was expecting them to be savvy on this and say, all right, I, we're obviously concerned about cancel culture. This one makes sense. And then a pivot to, hey, you're hypocrites anyway. That is not what they did. They have rallied behind Gruden. And I think this is an important statement about what hand they think they have versus what hand we think they have. This this idea of cancel culture, the right is obsessed with it. It was it was prominent in the RNC. I think they had like a canceled day at the RNC uh, in the 2020 election. Um, they seem to be banking on the fact that the American public is fed up with cancel culture writ large and that this is a winning issue for them. Liberals don't seem to see it that way. What do you make of the way that they rallied to Gruden? And do you think it, it, it has any larger meaning or significance uh, for our politics? Yeah, I do. And he, here's what I think. The way they rallied to Gruden has everything to do, shocker, with the fact that he's a white guy. And and it's not, I'm not just saying like- basic, And that he criticized Biden, which I forgot to mention too. They love that. Yeah. Right. I mean, and, and here's the here's the reason that matters. It's not just like, oh, we defend all white guys, right? What it is, is it's strategic. It is, why did they make a whole day at the RNC that was cancel culture? Why, why do they keep talking about that politically? Because they want the average 
white guy or gal voter who is the voting block that they are desperate to hang on to as much as possible because part of the reason they lost the 2020 election is because they didn't win that group in the suburbs the way that they need to. How do they hang on to them? They convince that group of voters, you're going to be canceled. Something you're thinking, something you might inadvertently say is going to cause you to lose your job or your place in society or in the volunteer position at your kid's school or whatever. They want you to feel that way, which is why they rally to the defense of Gruden and 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 make it and try and blow it up because they want you to feel like if they can get Gruden, they can get you. The truth is, is that this is just like so many other things in cancel culture, not all things, but many things in cancel culture where this dude was fired from his job because it was determined, as far as I can tell, that he you can't have those things become public and then continue to be a credible leader of an organization that has people who fit into almost all of these demographic groups within it. Like you can't lead a football team that has African-Americans on it and the only out regular like the first gay player to play in the regular season ever in the NFL is on his roster like you you can't do that you can't lead that team and that's why he's out yeah i i'm curious as to where the right is on accountability you know this is this is a wing of our politics that has been responsible for right to work laws and at will employment across the country and they seem to be saying that this was outrageous that this guy was fired. He clearly showed a huge lack of discipline and a lack of morals and ethics. And, you know, what is genuinely fireable to people on the right at this point? It seems like saying terrible things about your coworkers and your boss and sharing naked pictures of an employee of the, the organization you work at uh, is a fireable offense. It's not even a fireable offense, but it, I think it is a must fire offense. And meanwhile, these are the same people, including Shapiro, Clay Travis, all these people tweeting who said the NFL had a right and in many ways seemed to think that they should have fired these NFL players for taking a knee. So the hypocrisy here is incredible. No sense of having consistency here. But then you also have uh, what I would characterize as Olympic level whataboutism going on here about this stuff. So, you know, Shapiro tweeted, oh, leaking emails is acceptable now, meaning like a reference to the Clinton stuff, which, you know, Shapiro is smart enough to know there's a difference between a foreign power hacking a, a, you know, major candidate in the middle of an election season at the urging and cheering on of the other guy. Uh, and then leaking those uh, strategically throughout the election cycle is different than the NFL investigating its own workplace and probably leaking their own stuff here, uh, if we're being honest, which we can get around to. You know, and then they mentioned other players like Deshaun Watson and Richard Sherman, who've had some terrible incidents and one of whom continues to play, the other who's kind of on leave. Eminem and Dr. Dre, who are performers, I guess, at Super Bowl, which has its own thing. Look, there is hypocrisy in the NFL. Some of those are examples of it. Some aren't. But why can't they just be like, yeah, this guy should be fired. Now let's talk about some other people who should be fired. Why, why can't that be their, their reaction to this? Their argument seems to be, but he said this a long time ago and he didn't, think, he didn't think he was saying it to anybody other than who he was talking to, which just really makes me feel like when Ben Shapiro and Tucker Carlson and these folks are not on TV, they say some really racist shit. Like, I mean, that's like, I mean, it, you know, the stuck pig howls or whatever. Like, I mean, that's, that's what it is. Like, it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. He said this several years ago and he didn't think any non-white people would, would hear it. 
how is that not fine? Like, I mean, that's yeah. literally their response. And the answer is, uh, well, see, when you have a bunch of people who work for you who would be offended by that and it does become public, well, that's a problem. Right. And in this debate, like, I think that these debates take on this binary, right, which is you're either for or against cancel culture. Right. Or you believe it's a problem or you don't believe it's a problem. And, I, you know, I'll put my cards on the table. I think there are aspects of what we call cancel culture that I think are unfair and not well calibrated, where I think the consequences we bring to bear on people aren't well thought out because they're they're not any one person doing them. And there seems to be like a cheering on effect uh, of destroying certain people's careers for either mistakes they made or mistakes that they didn't make that I think are up for interpretation. This is not that. Uh, this is a very clear example of somebody should lose their job. And I think that this is not a both sides thing because I don't think the left really owns any of this particular Gruden thing other than like thinking it's a good idea. But I do find it frustrating when the debate is either you're you're defending somebody and the entirety of cancel culture or not. Like, I think there needs to be room in these debates for people who are like, yeah, I do think that there's certain aspects of what we call cancel culture that are bad. This is not it. Move along. When this comes up, when people bring it up because they're really talking about politics and just trying to draw you out, I think that the thing to remember is that the purpose of this is to make your white male friends believe that they're going to be canceled. And so for you listening, it is about assuaging that fear or... If you feel, you know, if you got a little audience where you are and your family sitting around, I think maybe it's about challenging that fear and being like, I'm sorry, what have you been saying in your emails that make you so worried about this? Right. And and right. And, and you can say to people, because if you're really concerned, then maybe you shouldn't say that kind of stuff in your email. Right. It also like you could go through one of these at a time. Right. And be like, look, do you think if you're shit talking your boss, you should be fired? Do you think if you shared naked pictures of a coworker, you should be fired? Do you think if you use racist language repeatedly about your colleagues, you should be fired? I'm guessing that the answer is going to be yes for most reasonable people. And then I would say, look, um, this is not a question of some of these, I think, tougher cases like the editor of Teen Vogue who uh, lost her job because of stuff she said as a teenager. Uh, that to me is a much more complicated situation. I would imagine I would disagree with a lot of people about the consequence there. This is this is a very clear cut case of being unable to lead your employees, as you said, and also just showing lack of discipline and ethics in a very high profile job. The guy had a hundred million dollar contract. Uh, so, you know, and, and I, and I think it, that's it right. wasn't like he was like still learning. Like he had already won a Super Bowl. Like I mean, right. <laughs> like right. I think it, they obviously think they have a good hand to play. I think we should take seriously the way people view cancel culture. Like so, example, like for example, some Democratic members of my family, for example, and maybe she'll get mad at me for saying this. My grandmother, who's a very loyal Democrat, I think had mentioned the term cancel culture to me not too long ago, and in a way that was like she's concerned about it. And so I do think that there's a very important conversation happening in society about how we allow time to pass and norms to change and people to grow and how do we calibrate consequences? How do we, how do we as a, the left calibrate the way we think about criminal justice reform and the need to re rehabilitate people and all that work, which I, I'm very involved with outside of um, this podcast and the public discussions, right? Like if somebody says bad things and somebody does bad things, I think we as the left are probably more likely to 
think that somebody could rehabilitate from the bad act if it's a criminal act than the bad things that they said. And, and I think people rightly point out that there's some asymmetry there and a lack of thought in some of these instances. So I think it's an invitation to 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 reexamine the way we think about these things. But <laughs> the right just doesn't seem to to be interested at all in that calibration. I think where I'd like to end this is this. This is going to end up being an example of the entire cancel culture conversation starting to find uh, a place to settle uh, on where it's going. And, and here's why. Because John Gruden is not going to be the coach of the Raiders anymore. But next season, he's going to be sitting at the desk at either NBC or CBS Fox or Fox. Not not even as a political. I mean, like on Sundays, um, yeah. you know, or, or an NFL network. And he's going to be a commentator again. And he's going to probably get a good amount of his endorsements back. Why? Because he said these things some time ago. He's going to be able to go through the process of being contrite, saying that he's learned. Now, does that mean he's going to be allowed in the near future to run an organization made up of all of these demographics that he has offended and said terrible things about? No, and appropriately so. But is he going to be allowed to go back and be a commentator again? I'm sure he will. And so that's not cancel culture. That is the manager is no longer a credible manager of the organization he's with, so he'll have to find other work. Jason, our friends over at Athletic Greens sent me over a double order of Athletic Greens. And so I've used this as an excuse to double my doses every day of Athletic Greens. And I'm like a superhero out there. I can't be stopped. You know, I think people are accusing me rightfully of using performance enhancing substances because although this is not that, this is the closest way to get there safely and without tipping off USADA and the other doping agencies, you know? Yeah, you just tell them, like, yeah, I'm on liquid vegetables, man. It's, yeah. it's the best. And, and look, one tasty scoop of AG1 contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, greens, superfood blend, and more in one convenient daily serving. It's a special blend of high-quality bioavailable ingredients in a scoop of AG1, and it all works together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you an immune-supporting free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase if you visit athleticgreens.com slash majority today. Uh, again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash majority to take control of your health and give AG1 a try. I've been using Headspace for quite a long time uh, for meditation. So I've been working my way through the different meditation courses that they have so that every day you have a slightly different meditation that sort of progresses you up the scale from one day to the next. And right now I'm on day two of the appreciation course. And so it just sort of helps you meditate on the things that you are grateful for at any given moment. That's where I am in my Headspace journey, and I think you'd find it very useful as well. Well, that sounds awesome. And what I love about Headspace is it's a convenient dose of meditation, mindfulness, and sleep exercises to relieve stress and anxiety and help you get a good night's sleep. And it's all in one app, and it makes it easy to catch your breath and make time for your mental health. And it's one of the most science-backed meditation apps in the world. The study proves in just two weeks, Headspace can reduce your stress by 14%. So you can find Headspace at headspace.com slash M54 and get one month free for the entire meditation library. And this is the best Headspace offer available. You can go to headspace.com slash M54 today, headspace.com slash M54. 
All right, now here's our interview with Heather McGee. She's an economist, speaker, racial justice advocate, and author of the best-selling book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. It reveals how racism actually holds everyone back by limiting or eliminating public services that everyone could use, like public pools, solid infrastructure, and good public transportation. With the infrastructure debate in full swing, this discussion with Heather seemed particularly important. Plus, her eye-opening framing of systemic racism can help all of us hold better conversations with the other side. So here's our conversation with Heather. Heather, a few years ago, an exchange you had with a man named Gary went viral. Uh, I think that story could resonate with our listeners. Do you mind telling us what happened? Yeah, sure. So first of all, I'm really glad to be with you all in this conversation. I think it's really important that we have these conversations. And that was one of the reasons why I wasn't so, so, so upset, although I was definitely taken off guard when I was on C-SPAN's Washington Journal, when I was president of the think tank Demos that works on solutions to inequality in our economy and democracy. And I was there to talk about taxes and student debt and jobs and trade, the things that I work on in my economic policy uh, career. And Yet, I think, honestly, just because I was a Black woman, one of the callers called in identifying himself as Gary from North Carolina. And he said, I'm a white male and I'm prejudiced. And, you know, this is a live television show that um, doesn't have a lot of visual interest on screen. It's basically just like a close-up of my face as I listen to people call in from all over the country. And so I sort of had to react in real time, like, aha, uh -huh, like exactly like you guys just did. Oh, okay. Sort of a, a can we, slow knock. Can we stop for a moment yeah. and just appreciate Washington Journal as a show? Oh, yeah. Because like, I still do watch it sometimes. And it really is something. I mean, it's like, it's like a cross between a town hall and like a, like a talk radio call in, yeah. but without the vitriol. And you really, you're, what you're describing is what it is. Like you just, a person sits there and People call, and I think, do they still do where it's like you can call in on the independent line yep. Yep. or the conservative or the or the liberal mm -hmm. line, and then they say what they are, and then they just ask you a question, and you just have to answer it on TV. Anyway, it's it's good TV. So well, go ahead. well, Heather, before you finish that, uh, when we're when you're done, I'll just remind me to tell you about a time I heard my own father call into Washington Journal under an alias. But you go first <laughs> because your story is better than mine. Robbie, was it Gary from North Carolina? <laughs> I forget the name, but he had an, he has an alias that hi, he has very offensive views, and he uses uh, an alias to hide them. But I knew his accent is very noticeable. But Heather, you go first. Is more Washington Journal content than I was expecting today. Let's roll. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Gary says, "I'm a white male, and I'm prejudiced." And then he goes on to kind of detail his thoughts and feelings and fears about kind of black men and crime and drugs and gangs. But then he says, but I want to change, you know, I, I want to become a better American. And I want to know basically what I, what I, Heather, can, can tell him to do to do that. And, you know, this is not my area of expertise, much less so even then in 2016 than it is now. But I just told him some ideas off of the top of my head. The first thing I said was thank you for admitting your prejudice, because that's a, a really powerful thing to do. And then I told him some things that he could do to kind of integrate his life to actually get to know black people who are not all of those stereotypes um, you know, read black history and about our contributions to the country, you know, 
recognize that the crime TV shows and news that he's consuming distort the picture of crime in America. You know, the majority of people who commit crimes are, are white, and yet the majority of people represented uh, in nightly news in many markets are, are people of color and, you know, that kind of thing. Anyway, we did this, we kept moving, and then that clip was posted online and the exchange went viral. It's like 20 million views. And, and then Gary found me on Twitter. He went on Twitter and said, his first tweet was, how does this thing work? And uh, found me and then uh, we got in touch with each other and we ended up meeting and becoming friends of, of a certain wow. sort. Like we really have known each other now for five years. He went on a journey to kind of re-educate himself. He really began to identify where the source of his racist ideas was coming from, like what was the source. And, you know, this is an isolated guy who lives, who, you know, never married. His constant companions are his dog, Bo, and his TV. And, you know, when you have one media ecosystem that is feeding you a constant diet, as he called it, of, you know, racial resentment and fear and panic and racial grievance, you know, it's impossible not to, you know, have an obesity problem, right? It's impossible not to have prejudice. And, and that's really why I blame the people who are selling racist ideas for their own profit so much more than I do the people who are desperate enough to buy them. Before we get into like what happened next and, and the book that grew out of it, your, your changed way of thinking that grew out of it and Gary's changed way of thinking. One thing I'm curious about, and I think a lot of our listeners in particular would be curious about is that here's Gary at home and he's, he's watching Tucker Carlson. And he's watching all this stuff. He's getting the steady diet you described. And yet, unlike so many of those people, there's somehow an inkling in Gary's mind that this is not good. So instead of instead of concluding, like unfortunately, a lot of people conclude that, well, this this is news. I'm digesting news. I'm reacting to news in the, in a rational way. And people who don't react to it this way are wrong. Something in Gary said, this may not be good. And it's not being a good American. And I wonder if in, in getting to know Gary, if you've been able to figure out what that was in Gary prior to that phone call that made him think about it that way. I did. It, it took me a while in our friendship for him to reveal that the inciting incident for him and being in the place where he wanted to pick up the phone and make that call. He's a pretty religious guy and he lives in North Carolina. But earlier that year, the a white supremacist kid who had been radicalized by YouTube videos and the algorithms Dylan Roof had walked into the Mother Emanuel Baptist Church and sat through Bible study and then slaughtered the black, mostly elders of the church that had been in Bible study with him minutes before with an automatic weapon. And that just shook Gary to his core as someone who sat in those kinds of Bible studies before. And there was sort of something that was so clearly good and evil about that he actually went through a whole process. There was a series in the newspaper, in his local newspaper, about the elders and their lives. And, and he, he kind of went through this sort of exercise that I would identify as sort of radical empathy, where he began to really think about one of them as like, what if this was my grandmother? And like, how, how would I feel? And like, sort of she became a character in his life. And I think he just very clearly saw that he didn't want to be anywhere on the side of 
roof, right? He wanted to be very clearly on the side of the people who were communing with God and were, were killed. Um, now, I will say, just to make sure that people who are listening who have Gary's in their lives are not like, well, sh- you know, she did it. Why can't I do it? You know, the past couple of years have been tough. And, you know, not to divulge a lot of, you know, personal stuff between Gary and me or in Gary's life, but it's not been a straight path. The pandemic particularly, which forced him further into isolation and further online, has gotten him caught up in a swirl of conspiracy theories. And, and you know, relations between Gary and me are strained. And mm-hmm. I also have not committed my life's work to continuing to coach him on racism. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're excused for that. Yeah. I think that's okay. <laughs> right? I think you've, you've taken a bit of a macro approach, which yeah. is good. Um, you know, but it, it breaks my heart for sure, right? Um, just the, um, the cynicism and the venality of so many of these purveyors of hate who it's not about what they feel in their hearts. It's about what puts money in their wallets. And that's what's so disgusting, whether we're talking about the vaccines and the masks, which they, you know, gladly do when they come to work at Fox News. And then they tell people uh, across the country not to do and to, in fact, see it as a, a spite against socialism to not take care of themselves and their neighbors. And, and they totally don't care about the life and death consequences. You know, I, I feel like in general, we have been seeing a very old playbook. And that's, you know, what I write about a lot in the book, my book. But we've been seeing it really sort of on steroids in, in recent years and, and more money and more technological sophistication and, and even less shame. And so many real people are playing the price. And Heather, you know, you alluded to this already, but you know, so much of your focus has been now on the purveyors of that misinformation and this sort of economy of radicalism that we have in this country. Tell us a little bit about like how you think of that focus. Is it a cathartic one in ways? Because then it allows you to focus on a smaller group of people. Because I often find that the enormity of the task, like saying that there are huge percentages of this country that have beliefs that feel so radical is almost exhausting. So is it almost like a an energy conserving exercise as much as it's anything else to say, all right, let's focus because you can't you can't go one Gary at a time as much as that our podcast is, is about that. We can't just solve it through individual conversations in some way. We need a structural solution, it seems, right? Yeah. Um, I think for me, it's a little bit different. I come to this through the lens of economic policy, right? Through trying to answer the question, why can't we have nice things in America? And by nice things, I don't mean laundry that does itself. I mean universal childcare and guaranteed healthcare and a well-funded school in every neighborhood and world-class infrastructure. And by we who can't have nice things, I mean the white Americans who are the largest share of the impoverished and the uninsured, as well as the people of color, the Americans of color who are disproportionately so. And so that question, which is from my background in economic policy, drove me to the question of what has racism got to do with it and drove me to the intersection of race and class and to understanding that ultimately this story that saps our strength, this zero-sum lie, this view that progress for people of color has to come at white folks' expense is 
a predominant lie in white consciousness today, according to the social science. But everything we believe comes from a story we've been told. And so I wanted to ask who's creating this story? Who's selling it? How are they profiting from it? And ultimately, the answer leads me to the same people who are rigging the economy for their own benefit. And so I came to this question of racism as a tool from an economic inquiry. Like, why is it that the country that created the greatest middle class the world had ever seen through a formula of high taxes on the wealthy, plowing that revenue back into public goods that benefited working in middle class people, that was the springboard for edu- you know, enterprise and innovation, you know, massive public goods in terms of subsidizing housing and free college and a high road labor model. Why did we turn our backs on that formula just when Black Americans were invited into the American dream in the 1960s and 70s, just when, as I write about in The Some of Us, we integrated the public pools and then many towns and cities across the country drained their public pools rather than integrate them. And so that idea of the drained pool politics that has more than any other causal factor that I was able to identify in 20 years of economic policy work, drained pool politics helps explain why white Americans went from two-thirds being supportive of government guaranteeing a job to anyone who wanted one and a minimum income, right? An income guarantee and a job guarantee was popular with nearly 70% of white folks in 1956 and 1960. And by 1964, after the March on Washington included two of a job guarantee and a national living wage as the demands, after Kennedy associated the party of the New Deal with civil rights, in 1963, doing a media blitz on civil rights that summer. And then, of course, we know that his successor, Lyndon Johnson, would, after signing the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act into law, become the last Democrat running for president to win the majority of white voters to this day. After that, you know, that is when we began to see the majority of white people reject ideas like a government job guarantee and a minimum income, reject the party of the New Deal, reject public goods, ones that included a public that wasn't good. And for me, it wasn't just about the receivers of that story. It was about in whose economic interest is it to destroy public goods, to destroy collective action for multiracial population, right? You know, you have these two forces in society that have the power to rein in the concentration of wealth and power. And they require all of us. One is government and one is unions. And both of those in a multiracial America require a sense of social solidarity, a sense of, you know, my fight is your fight. An injury to one is an injury to all. And by attacking that empathic cord, the purveyors of corporate power and the concentration of wealth can break both of those forces. And that's really been the history of the inequality era. What I think is so important and so interesting about, I'm not even going to say the argument you make, I think about the the groundbreaking observation (laughs) that is the point that you're making is that when I think about the American conversation, not just about race, but about America right now, you've got two sides to the argument. And unfortunately, neither have been the side that you're talking about, right? So the the one side, I think I would view as like, 
there's no other, there's no better way to explain it than distilling it to, I'm sorry to repeat it, but distilling it to make, make America great again, right? Because you take that crossroads moment that you described where we stopped investing in these things while at the same time, you know, uh, people of color began to be included in actually having prosperity and free and, and like rights and that kind of thing, the civil rights movement. You know, when they look back, when the other side, the right looks back at that, the story they're saying is everything was great until we started including these people in American life, right? And and then we know that that's their story. The problem is, is that the left's response to that, I I think has been, well, yeah, but here's why we should do it anyway. And what you're saying is, wait a minute, like, why are we accepting the premise that including people of color in prosperity has has displaced prosperity for other people. I mean, you're saying no, th- don't say yeah, but say that's totally wrong and, and counterproductive. Exactly. And in fact, why are you blaming your neighbor who just finally got a shot at glimpsing the American dream for snatching that dream away when they weren't the ones who decided to make you pack up the machine you were working on and ship it overseas? That wasn't there. They certainly didn't have the power to close tens of thousands of factories, right? They didn't have the power to stop raising the minimum wage um, to have a middle class decline. They didn't have the power to drain the pool of resources for public college so that you have to have a middle class income to go to community college in your state and let your kids graduate without debt. You know, that that was not the decision of black and brown people by any means. Like it only takes a little bit of pushing on the on the make America great again narrative. It's like since when did people of color and immigrants have enough power to be calling these shots? But that's what the lie of the racial bargain does, right? The racial bargain that has been sold to white folks since before our founding, since it was the colonial plantation elite, which was saying like, you're indentured servants, but don't side with the other people who are toiling away in various levels of unfreedom, side with us um, because of your color, not your class. And it's that racial bargain, side with your race and not your class, that has been the undoing. It's always been the undoing of, of collective action in our history. You can see it as sort of waves of, of sort of rising of a collective spirit and cross-racial solidarity and then the attempts to destroy it. Um, I actually think that despite the volume of vitriol, despite the organization of the paid backlash at this moment, we are at a, a cresting moment, right? You look at the numbers around the Build Back Better agenda and all of these ideas that used to be racially so coded that they were an anathema to Democrats and white Democrats and an anathema to, you know, white suburban voters are now like, yeah, yeah, let's refill the pool. Let's have universal childcare. Let's have universal elder care. We've tried it for the fa- past 50 years of doing it on our own. My middle-class salary is not going to pay for healthcare, education, transportation, childcare, and elder care. It's just not, right? Let's stop trying to be on our own here, right? A, a report came out, it was a cover of the New York Times about how the average OECD country, right, our peer wealthy nation spends $14,000 a year caring for toddlers to help the parents be in the workforce and to invest in 
early childhood and, you know, your future citizens. And we spend 500. I mean, you know, who's that hurting? Everyone. And that's really the point of the sum of us. It's the subtitle of the sum of us is that racism and our politics and our policymaking ultimately has a cost for everyone. As we look ahead now, you know, there is a seems to be like some deep support for individual items in if you itemize out some of these items like a higher minimum wage, greater access to health care, et cetera, a lot of these things, you know, individual components of that build back better bill you talk about, like there's a UVA poll recently that had some scary findings for our country. But one of the more reassuring ones is that there actually seems to be a consensus around a lot of policy ideas as you talk about. But you use this word, the collective, right? The collective action. What do we need to do in order to restore some kind of shared belief in the collective? Because it feels to me like that idea of a collective is as at risk as it's ever been before in this country. So I think we need to do it from two ends. One, we need to choke off the supply of racist ideas, right? You know, whether it's in our politics, as the right wing has doubled down on Trumpism and on adopting white supremacist rhetoric into the mainstream of conservative media and, uh, you know, embrace the big lie and try to minimize the insurrection attempt at January 6th and, and use it as a, the big lie as a pretense for trying to suppress the votes of everybody you know, people of color, young people, people who don't want to have to take six days off of work to register and vote, you know, um, you know, we've got to create more of a penalty for that kind of politics. You know, this week we had the explosive testimony of the Facebook whistleblower about how much there is profit in outrage and hate and how much Facebook has really come down on the side of the most divisive you know, forces in our society. And it has to be reined in. It has to be broken up. There's no reason why it should own so much of a share of our social media um, enterprises. And, you know, we need to choke off the supply. Like, it's just, it's just not, I don't think that Facebook, Facebook and Fox News and, you know, OANN are, are compatible with a multiracial democracy. And I think as citizens in a democracy, we need to set limits. But then there's the ground up. Right. And that's where a lot of what I was able to discover in my journey to write The Sum of Us gave me hope, where there are people in community all across the country rejecting the zero sum lie, being willing to link up arms across lines of race and say, you know what, there are common solutions to our common problems here. And that, you know, this is our shared history. We want to know it. So they're fighting back against these attacks on honest education um, they are sort of reclaiming our history. They're educating themselves and they are winning in multiracial coalitions, what I call solidarity dividends. And that's these gains that can only be unlocked through collective action. And in a multiracial democracy, that's collective action across lines of race. And whether that's cleaner air, higher wages or better funded schools, it's really about reconnecting to the power of organizing and being willing to call out the zero sum, but call in people who may have believed the zero sum, who may be receiving the message about the zero sum, but invite them to find blame in the people who've had the power to rig the rules. 
not in their neighbors and their would-be neighbors who don't have the power to rig the rules, who are not benefiting from this rigged system. Um, and that's that's really the bargain that we've got to make, which is that life will be better for all of us if we rediscover the power of the many to take on the few. It's a perfect place to end it because I love how you just said that. And it's almost like a perfect tagline for what this podcast really is about, which is the difference between calling out and calling in, you know, the difference between like just trying to judge and shame versus invite to participate. And uh, I think that that's fantastic. All right, Heather, thank you so much. Um, we're, we're really uh, huge fans. And uh, if you don't mind just telling people where they can find your wonderful book. Yeah. So the book is called The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. S-U-M, The Sum of Us, a play on the zero sum. And it is available wherever books are sold. Where do they find you on social? Social. No, I'm just social media. <laughs> on um, Facebook now. On, on, on things that should be broken up. <laughs> right next to the Newsmax feed. Um, <laughs> um, can find me on Twitter at, at hmcgee6, H-M-C-G-H-E-E-6, or at heathermcgee.com or Heather C. McGee on Instagram and Facebook. Thanks for doing this. All right. Thanks to you both. I've said this a couple weeks in a row uh, for grabbing ore, but I'm going to say it again. If you go to uh, Diana's Instagram, um, it's at Diana Kander on Instagram. And also on Twitter, what you'll find is a link to our uh, Big Brothers, Big Sisters, Kansas City fundraising campaign that we're doing where Diana is uh, doing pull-ups to raise money for this. So like the more money you give, the more pull-ups my wife has to do. She's getting very strong. So I'd encourage you to do that. Um, you can feel free to leave us a voicemail uh, and we would hopefully address it in a coming episode. That's 508-687-2589, 508-687-2589. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. Our show is at majority 54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music is provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varva Lucas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard Professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.